Hi, everyone. In this episode, I speak with Greg Casali, the founder and CEO of Reveneer, a market leader in designing, building, and managing custom high-velocity inside sales operations for software companies. Greg shares his professional journey, why he started Reveneer, and how his company works with clients, his thoughts on what impact COVID-19 has had on the business environment, and potential long-term changes going forward because of it. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the High Impact Information Podcast so you'll know when new episodes are released. Thank you. Hey, Greg, really appreciate you making the time to be on the High Impact Information Podcast. I thought a great place to start would just be some background on your career journey. I believe that you went to college for chemical engineering. So what were you kind of looking to do with that coming out of college? So I, I did go to school for chemical engineering with kind of an eye towards the oil and gas industry. I was living in Texas at the time, and um, that was kind of what was what was booming. But um, by the time I got out of college, it was a, more about defense, uh, the defense industry, kind of Reagan era uh, defense industry spending. So I shifted to manufacturing in the defense industry, so got involved in uh, manufacturing for um, government contracts, missiles and bombs, things like that. And and that really introduced me to process engineering, which really now has a, a lot of relevance in sales, but eventually made my way into um, supply chain management and then working into tech companies. I didn't get into software probably until um, kind of the early 2000s. Yeah, it definitely seems like somewhat of a non-traditional career path. Yeah, probably a little non-traditional. I mean, you see a lot of times now people coming up through the inside sales roles, whether it's, you know, BDR or ISR. And I actually came up through more of a, a program management, product management track. So kind of was responsible for new product introductions at a tech company. And from there, got into creating programs for the channel. So bringing products to market. And it really wasn't until I, I got into kind of strategic alliances, business development, that I really made my way into to true transactional selling. And that was pretty late in my career. I mean, the way, you know, I see people doing it nowadays, I think it was probably a little bit unusual, but uh, got me to this point. For sure. And I believe that you then ended up back in Boston working for one of the original video conferencing companies. Came back here for a, um, a, a real... Uh, sort of upstart uh, startup company that it, it's it's funny to look back on it now, but they were the pioneers of video conferencing. And we're talking about kind of mid nineties here. And so if you think about Zoom that everybody's on today, I mean, you can do that pretty much free today. I, I joined a company that we were selling these systems for like $300,000 and up uh, to allow people to do video conferencing from room to room. And uh, that's really changed quite a bit, but that was my first kind of high-tech experience, and I moved from Texas to, to Massachusetts to take that opportunity. Got it. And then you moved on to a company called Abneta, which is where you were right before starting Reveneer? And Abneta was probably my first exposure to what I would call these high-velocity inside sales operations. People call them BDR models. And, um, you know, I really found it intriguing to, to see how that worked, where you could have high volume outbound calling and in kind of a very process driven way, drive those opportunities through a sales funnel and, and transact business. Uh, and so I, I kind of used that opportunity to see a lot of things that I thought worked well with the models, but a lot of things I thought could be done differently. And I kind of put my process engineering hat 
on and really thought about how would I design this process if I was to do it with a blank slate. And that became the template or the blueprint for Revenir. That was how the company started, was really with a schematic or a blueprint that I designed around how I thought these operations should be run. And, and um, it's evolved quite a bit since then, but I think the premise is pretty much the same. Yeah, that makes sense. From there, what was the thought process to try and make a business out of assisting companies with their inside sales operations? I believe this was around 2012. So what was the market opportunity you saw? Yeah, I think it was a combination of a couple of things. One, it was just my this kind of process minded uh, view that I have when I look at things. I always um, kind of can look through the people and just see the process underneath and what would it take to really optimize the process. And at the time, SaaS companies and SaaS business models were obviously how most software companies were were going to market. And I saw those two things really interesting, both the combination of being able to create frictionless selling in an inside model, and then these business models that really relied on that to happen, being able to sell efficiently because they couldn't afford a lot of cost of sales in a lot of these different SaaS models. So that was the problem I decided to solve. And it was one that I had experienced both at Abneta because we were a SaaS company and we were selling and we had to figure out a way to do it profitably. But also uh, prior to that, I had been CEO of a, of a tech company and I saw us as a company struggle with these same kinds of things. So I thought there was something really interesting under there and I just started tinkering with it and then got the opportunity through some people I knew in the business to try it out on one company, uh, just sort of as a consultant. And it worked really well. And that led to two or three referral opportunities to do the same thing. And so I, I really started out as a, as a one-man consulting business, bringing this template to these companies. And, and that evolved eventually into the services business that we have today. That's an interesting backstory to the founding of Revenir. Can you spend a little time outlining what service you are offering companies and what that looks like from their perspective? So we provide fully white labeled, 100% dedicated inside sales operations as a service. And there's a couple of things in there. The fully white labeled, our teams look and act to the outside world as if they work for the company we represent. So the team that we stand up is 100% an extension of our clients uh, inside sales operations. So that's kind of the first thing. The other piece is they're 100% dedicated to that one client. So unlike a lot of companies, we're not moving people around. We don't share them fractionally from one project to the next. They're 100% embedded in that engagement. They learn really well how to have conversations about those products. And they typically will stay with that client for the life of the engagement. So that's the service we offer. It's a managed service, meaning our customers pay one fee for the whole service. It's not just the people, and that's really important. We obviously are putting together stellar SDR teams, but there's also the management of those people. There's the technology stack under the covers, there's a playbook, um, there's how we retain talent, which is really important in these models. So there's a lot that goes into doing it. We distill all that down into one easy monthly payment for our customers. The concept makes a lot of intuitive sense. So I think a lot of younger companies can struggle with how aggressively and when to invest in their sales operation. At what point in their life cycle does it make the most sense to engage with Revenir and what your team can offer? Well, I get approached by a lot of companies that would be what I would call too early sometimes, and they may have the capital. And that can sometimes cause companies to, to think 
that they're ready because they have the capital to invest and why not invest in scaling up your sales operation. The, the, what I've discovered though, is that if you haven't already figured out in a, in a pretty repeatable and predictable way, how to go about um, targeting your ideal customer, leading them through a journey and getting them to transact business with you. If you haven't done that repeatedly over, you can pick a number, I mean, a dozen customers or so and, and understood what's working and what's not and made changes to it, you really don't want to scale that up, even if you if you have the capital to do it. So what I typically would recommend to those companies is not using Revenir or someone like us, but think about just maybe hiring one person, maybe investing in digital marketing and automation to generate leads in the beginning, and then really try to understand what's working and what's not. Go through some iteration. And when you think you have it working, that's usually the sign to maybe scale that part of the operation up with a couple of people or maybe as as many as four but as you can imagine you know when you're doing trial and error uh type stuff um, and you're paying for payroll and people it's expensive and you don't want to rely too much on that you want to make sure that you're you're booking business while you're doing it to drill down a little more what are some of the specific signals that can help inform when it makes sense to look to expand your sales efforts this this really gets into that um, you know, what I talked about and understanding a little bit about how it works before you, you start to scale it. And one of the most important things to understand is the conversion metrics about how leads convert into opportunities and how opportunities convert to close business. You really have to understand those at a pretty deep level because that's going to ultimately inform what the right scale of the, of the operation should be. A lot of companies, particularly venture-backed companies, are going to have revenue goals. I mean, everything kind of starts with the revenue goal. You probably got investment because you had revenue goals. So for those companies, they typically have to work back from the revenue goals and say, what's going to generate that business for us? Is it going to be inbound? Is it going to be outbound? Are we going to use digital? Are we going to use people? Are we going to use a combination of both? And you have to have the conversion metrics to rely on to say, if I put this many people on it, this is what I'm likely to get in pipeline. And if I get that much pipeline, this is likely what's going to convert over time. And if I want to achieve my objectives, here's the investment that I have to make. So a lot of times the right sizing is really just about what are the goals of the business? You know, that's probably the the first place that I would start with it. Now, there's a mistake that you can make here, which is to try and do too much too fast because the, the, if you jump to a big size, let's say the numbers tell you you need a dozen people in an inside sales operation, there's a huge undertaking with getting a, a 12 people into an operation, getting them all trained to do something the same way, getting them, all, getting them all outfitted with the tech stack, all of these things. And it's likely that it's going to take longer than you think and that you're going to have some challenges along the way that you didn't anticipate. So I always recommend start small, maybe two to four and you can call them ISRs, you can call them SDRs or BDRs, but start small with a small group, give them a cadence around lead gen, whether it's outbound or inbound, and go to it with the eye that you're going to teach them eventually to transact business. If they can start at the top of the funnel, they'll learn to transact business, go over uh, time with that small group, and then once that's working, double the size. But I, I think four is usually max to try something out and then go to the bigger sizes. Seems like very practical advice. 
You talked about the conversion metrics to look at to understand how business closes. As a follow-up to that, how else have you seen the use of data evolve in assisting sales teams? I mean, when I started, of course, we were we were capturing metrics and things like that. But fast forward, and it hasn't been all that many years, we're all now doing real-time data um, aggregation. You know, no longer are you putting things together in reports, or even Salesforce reports are outdated because they're ultimately just a snapshot in time. What people really want now and what we've invested in over the last two years is real-time aggregation. So as the metrics are coming off the calls or coming off your tech stack, those metrics are being aggregated so that you can gain insights uh, right as it's happening. In other words, if you wanna know the best time to get a hold of a certain persona, uh, which day of week, which time of day is gonna be optimal, as that data is aggregating every hour and every day, you want to be able to mine the data for that information and then get it back in the hands of the people that can use it, which is the team. So we've really come to this place of, you know, the AI word is kind of thrown around, which I think is too much, but there is automation. There is some element of machine learning, but at the very core is, is real-time data aggregation, which drives everything about these and I think we have a unique advantage because we sit on these four dozen teams and we gather all this data. If you're a company with two or four SDRs, it's going to take you years to amass that kind of data and insights. So I think one of the advantages of taking of working with a partner is you can look bigger than you are and maybe get to the answer quicker than you might get to by yourself. Yeah, it seems like there's definitely some leverage there to tap into. So given that every company and industry is unique, what are some overall practical tips that come to mind for companies to figure out how salespeople can engage with buyers? Yeah, and, and this is um, it's an interesting thing. And I, I, the one thing I advice I try to give to companies that are starting out and trying to figure this out is whatever ultimately is the right decision for your company and for your product and for your business is going to be unique to you. There's so many combinations of things. You can, you can have digital inbound married up with outbound phone, you can have um, a high degree of automation or a low degree of automation, you can use social uh, that might work in other places it doesn't. Don't think that because someone on LinkedIn is uh, advocating one way or the other saying that calls don't work, or email conversion rates are down that you should use that to inform what you do. I think ultimately, you want to try things out for your product in your market measure it, see what's working, and then double down on the things that are working. We're obviously phone first. We believe in outbound calls. There's a lot of, um, I think, bad information out there about the the effectiveness of, of calling. And most of the reason that people would say it's not effective is because they're not making enough calls statistically to make it effective. We know how many calls it takes uh, for it to be effective. We bring that science to what we do and so we make outbound work but we're not parochial about it we know that you also need uh, email sequences which we use and you also need to be doing a certain amount of of linkedin or, or social networking as well the key to all of it and what i tell companies is it's not a it's not a religious argument about which is better the key is that you have something that's repeatable so if you have four people doing this work what's most important is they're all doing it the same way so if you decide that phone first is more effective, make sure everyone is calling first before they email a prospect. Tell them how many dials you expect them to make per lead before they go to email. 
these things have to be spelled out because when you look at the metrics and try to figure out if it's working or not, the metrics are only as good as the uniformity of the activities behind it. If everyone's doing it their own way, you can look at metrics all day long. It's not going to tell you the answer. It's just going to simply tell you what was happening on that day or week. You want to know which, which methodology is more effective than the others. So what are some of the specific ways Revenir approaches a customer engagement and fine-tuning that sales message? We go through an effort of building, we call it the playbook. I mean, the word's kind of overused, but it's our way of defining the sourcing strategy. What's the ideal customer profile? What are the personas in those companies that we want to get a hold of? We define that in great detail. How we're going to open our calls. We use kind of a unique uh, way of opening our calls that's not scripted. How we handle objections, how we discover needs and pain, and how we close the call. We have a ton of experience doing this. It can be daunting for someone or a company to do it for the first time. Um, we have a massive library about things that work in different vertical markets for different personas and industries, and we can mine that to build a playbook very efficiently with our customer in kind of a collaborative way. We're essentially interpreting what they think the best messaging is. We're interpreting it for an outbound phone uh, cadence, which is very different than other forms. So if you try to take what's working in email and bring it to the phone, it will probably fail and vice versa. You have to do something very different there. So we spend a good couple of weeks building the playbook before anybody's making calls. And then once we go through the calling, we're going to be iterating based on the data. And we do that through sprints uh, or, or campaigns where you want to control the variables for a period of time, maybe two weeks, and then look at the metrics and then change another variable and run again. That's the way you want to kind of painstakingly go through to figure out what's going to work best for you. Have you found that certain tactics generally work better in enterprise versus SMB or vice versa? Before you can do that, the one of the most important differences from, say, SMB up to enterprise and everything in between is the connect rate of people that you're trying to get a hold of. And connect rate is quite simply the rate at which they will, will pick up the phone if you make 100 dials. So uh, the industry average might be somewhere around five and a half, six percent, six and a half. So about six and a half percent of dials get picked up. But we know that if we actually do it by persona or different levels, C-level VP, director, manager, the connect rates are very different. You can be as low as one and a half to 2% for a DevOps decision maker. You could be as high as eight or 9% for uh, a VP in sales or marketing, which tend to pick up the phone. Um, the business size makes a big difference. Uh, we've called hyper SMB before, which I'll call like very small businesses like um, electrical contractors and, um, you know, even like tanning salons selling POS, they're going to have a very high connect rate. So you have to understand the connect rate. And then the next is that's just somebody picking up the phone. It could be a gatekeeper. We try to have direct dial phone numbers that we get through paid um, tools like Zoom Info and, and others so that we can get directly to decision makers. The interesting thing about all of this with connect rates is as much as people say people don't pick up the phone or I don't pick up my phone when sales, you know, I get sales calls that I don't recognize. The, if you look at it in aggregate, the connect rates are actually higher now than they've ever been. And the reason for that is the proliferation of the, of the cell phone, the mobile phone that people carry with them. That's now the default office phone. So it's a great time to use outbound phone, but you have to understand um, who you're calling, 
what can I expect for connect rates and how often, how many dials do I have to call that one person before statistically they'll pick up? And it turns out that number can be eight to 10, eight to 12 dials just to get the first conversation with a decision maker or influencer. We call about two to three times a week uh, for any one uh, target. We're not calling every day or multiple times a day. And, and that mix um, we, we think gives you the highest probability for getting a live conversation. That's interesting to see the analysis behind it. So changing topics a little, obviously some tectonic shifts in how we live and work with COVID-19 over the past year. What are some of your high level observations during this time period? Yeah, it's been it's been a learning experience and it's not over. Uh, there's there's no way to prepare for this. Um, they don't teach it to you in school and sure. there's no playbook, but there will be one after, I'm sure. But if, if I think back to March of last year, like a lot of businesses, we were forced to kind of close the office and send people home and not really sure what would happen when we did. And, and that's kind of scary because that's the core of our business. And it turned out our teams performed uh, really well. Uh, the metrics were across the board the same or higher than we were experiencing before, with the exception of connect rate, which which did go down from about six and a half percent to four point seven percent. But the other metrics were all higher. So the first thing that that we learned was that uh, COVID didn't do anything to dampen the ability to prospect. It was still there. It is still there. And so when I look across my customers back in March, there were some that just kind of panicked and said, you know, we're going to pull back our investment in prospecting. We don't think it's going to be effective. We're going to save that um, capital and do something else with it. And we'll come back when we think it's okay to do that. And who can argue with them? Nobody really knew what was going to happen. But in hindsight, that um, is not the right strategy. It turns out the companies that continued to invest in prospecting during this period um, maintained full pipelines. Now, the transaction rates definitely went down, uh, uh, the transaction rate of business and the sales cycle was probably extended because people just weren't um, buying at the same rate as they were before, but the prospecting and the pipelines were robust. And that's important because now we come back to January, all of the connect rates are back the way they were. Pretty much everything is back for most industries, except for some in hospitality, um, those servicing restaurants and things like that. And so now the companies that have full pipeline are ready to transact business, um, whereas the ones that decided to take off from prospecting and now have kind of decimated funnels and they have to go build back. Um, so that's the learning that we all got, again, from hindsight. I mean, nobody really, really knew that was going to be the case. But that's, um, you know, I think one of the big takeaways is, and I, I take that further, I just say, there's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times due to different market um, forces. You should always be prospecting. I think it's that simple. And that's true if you're an SDR that has to get up every day and, and look for leads or a business that's going to invest uh, capital. You've got to always be prospecting regardless of what's going on in the market. Makes sense to have a consistent approach. And if we look forward, what are some of your thoughts on how things could change in terms of sales processes? And separately, how companies are engaging with their employees. I think from a, I think there's some things we can take away from just running a business that has employees, and, and I've learned a lot about that. But also, uh, from the sales front, I mean, on the sales front, the simple the simple observation is that we no longer can define the role of a salesperson by um, 
you know, kind of how they work and where they work. So, you know, we used to talk about inside sales versus the field and, and that, that was quite physical, right? Somebody either works in the corporate office uh, inside or they're out in the field in some kind of a, you know, quota carrying sales rep. If you take all that away and say, well, everybody is working somewhere outside of the office, then you no longer can put those labels on it. And it forces you to think about the roles that these people play in moving a customer through the journey. And it turns out that wasn't a great way to define the roles of these people by physically where they were located. If we think, if we take all that away and just say, what role do they play in moving the customer through the journey? It turns out you can do a lot with a lower level resource that I'll just call an inside sales rep um, or an SDR slash ISR. I mean, all these labels kind of blend together. We favor teaching someone initially to do the SDR role, which is heavy on prospecting, but then slowly move them down the funnel so that they're delivering different experiences to the customer until ultimately they're closing. And for most SaaS solutions, you can do that pretty quickly, probably in a matter of about six to 12 months for somebody coming in. So this isn't true for all products, but I think we can think about linear sales process that doesn't require um, a handoff uh, to somebody necessarily with more experience. I think that's one of the takeaways. And I think that's probably one of the biggest um, changes that we see happening in, in sales. For businesses with employees, I think what we're learning is, yes, working remotely works. You can send people home if they have the right tools and training and oversight and management and help that they need. They can be just as effective. But I also think the rest of the story isn't told yet. And that's that people need a place to go to at least some time. And so I think the companies that are saying, you know, we're going to be, we're getting rid of the offices for good. We're hundred percent remote. I think are a little too quick to do that. Uh, I think people ultimately need the option to have a place to go sometime of the, of the week or the month. And I think that it's our obligation to provide that space for them and not necessarily say that they need to carve out a piece of their house to do that. So that's sort of just some of the things I think that um, is still evolving through, through all this stuff. That makes sense, offering more flexibility and options for employees. All right, Greg, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Really appreciate you making the time to be on the podcast and sharing your insights. Best of luck with Revenir and looking forward to seeing all the continued success. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Really good to chat with you about this stuff and, and good luck to you as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if your company is looking to get to the next level with your sales efforts, I highly recommend you get in touch with Greg and the team at Revenir. Thank you. And finally, please subscribe to the High Impact Information Podcast for new content coming soon.